You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, Stone Spring Maidens. Chapter 4 Back to Mothwood. Gabriella, day 28 of Inanna, late summer fall, 1883. Penny and Cal stood upon an aerial platform as the sun began to set over Gabriella. The buildings below were painted in tangerine and chili pepper light, with shafts of bumblebee yellow lancing through the clouds to play off the arched window panes. It was after rush hour, and the stragglers were emerging into the warm early evening breeze, which danced with eddies of pentagonal ginger leaves. If you had agreed to us being driven there, I could have finished my workday properly, Cal remarked. And we could leave any hour we liked. Now we have to time ourselves to when this antique heads back. I like this antique, Penny said boldly as the oaken tram curved around the rail in the distance and drew up to the lofty station they stood upon. And I do not at all mind conducting our visit around its timetable. They were sharing the platform with seven others, and as the cars came whinnying into place and the doors unfolded outwards, Penny experienced that familiar rush of excitement as she stepped inside the creaking, suspended, carapaced gondola. They took their seats upon the faded, tawny, velvet couches, and Penny edged over to the window. The doors closed and the tram threw itself out into the sky with a heave. And they glided across the city, over treetops and between spires, above communal gardens and fountains, as the people below formulated their dinner plans. Calendula was talking, but Penny wasn't listening. Her eye was on a specific area that they were approaching. In the middle of Flax Market Square, an enormous marquee had been erected some time ago to enshroud an anomaly. Guards flanked the opening of the tent, wielding lightning pikes. A copper staff with textured grips and a flared headpiece, quietly fizzing with potential energy that would put an Elaine down on the ground, gibbering and shaking. After only one jab, unable to speak or get up for a good ten minutes. Penny stared at the obscuring tent and then glanced back at Cal, who had paused, noticing her interest. Will you take me in there soon? Into the tent or through the door? First one, then the other, I should hope. I wish I had the authority to do that. So far, none of us has been permitted through there. The people beyond are rather paranoid and territorial. It's a big, protracted exercise in gaining their trust, and all negotiations take place over here. We've both charged one another with protecting the integrity of the door. I would so like to get close. Maybe sometime I can get you inside the marquee, at least. I can bring you to the passageway. It really is quite a sensory experience to be near. That much you've told me. Perhaps I could sit in or observe one of the upcoming negotiations. I really am fascinated by the idea of another species just as intelligent as us. I wouldn't go that far. They only figured out washing your hands is a good idea about 35 suns ago. In many ways, they're utter barbarians. All the same, I should like to meet one. I'll... At this, Calendula paused, letting the sentence hang. Penny leaned forward earnestly, crossing her wrists. I'll see what I can do, she finished after suitable compliant anticipation had been proffered. Penny glanced back as Flax Market Square receded into the friscalating dusk.
After a train ride which took far too little time, Penny and Cal were stood outside the tall, imposing edifice of Mothwood, the Clements household. Jet black diamond tiles interspersed with white marble. Hugo, the polite graying concierge clad all in black, led them in through the front door, still as severe and implacable a gateway as it had been when Penny was only two feet tall. Her mother sashayed down the stairs, dressed in pearl, waves of curled hair dyed black. Penthesily, did you take the scenic route to get here? She asked indignantly, her voice piercing and diagonal. The caffeine in the pot would be lukewarm now if I hadn't anticipated your dallying. Calendula, what are we going to do with this girl? I really must ask. So good to see you, Lamia. I love this, said Cal, fingering the onyx brooch at her mother-in-law's lapel. Somehow during all of the above, the lady of the house had ushered the two of them from the reception hall into the parlour, and they were already lowering themselves onto Penny's least favourite couch, the one upholstered in white heart. She made us take that rattling death trap sky bus. And what's wrong with being driven? That's what I asked. Mother, we don't have an overabundance of time. Our tram home is in just under an hour. Could we please just have a drink and you can tell us this news of yours? I didn't realize you had so many dreadfully important places to be. Lamia replied sniffily and rang a small bone bell. Hugo obligingly brought in a tray of drinks. A slender cadamia infusion for Cal, a measure of iced kefin, blended with suffocated kumquat liqueur for Lamia, who took the fluted glass and raised it to her lips like a cherished lover. Hugo set a mug down in front of Penny, who recognized the aromas of mint and chocolate, and beamed at him in gratitude, bowing her head in recognition that he had remembered her favorite. She would need it to get through what was coming. You're how old now? Lamia asked, swirling her glass and regarding Penny coldly across the room. Twenty-three. And don't you think you're a bit grown up for all this? A swiped finger indicated Penny's forest green buckled boots and leggings, her sleeves and the mint and lime detailing on her dress coat. A final upslash of that accusatory finger signified the lipstick and the subtle gradient of green shades through her blonde hair and somehow even seemed to be impugning the jade irises of the eyes she had been born with. You look like a 14-son dandiprat, a directionless wastrel more suited to riding her scooter on the promenade than attaining a place of societal prominence where she belongs. Do your patients not query it? Does it scare them to receive their treatments from someone who looks like they first bled not two sons ago? This is a genuine question. I'm not seeking to insult you. I would simply like to know... A fire had gathered inside Penny, an indignance that butted up against the back of her teeth, a pressure in her lungs and behind her eyes, her tongue reared back like a serpent ready to strike. A lot of them think it's fun, she murmured in a small voice, lowering her hair to obscure her eyes and sipping the comforting chocolate. And it's not something I plan on changing anytime soon. I like this. Oh, liking it is the least of your problems. We like plenty of things that are bad for us. Drink, fornication, the wrong kind of man, wrong kind of woman. Calendula was nodding along overtly to this. A preoccupation with the past. What proves our character is being able to move beyond our likes for our own betterment. 
Now, I've tolerated your rebellious little act for many sons. You haven't. Penny didn't say. And you got astonishingly lucky when you met this one. She gestured to Cal with her glass, and a dribble of brown amber liquid leapt over the rim and hung in midair. Penny beheld a slosh of dark surface, bouncing back the fading light from the window until it continued its journey down to the alabaster carpet and immediately soaked into the weave. Frock! Hugo, you're needed. Her man was there and gone, and then returned with the stain-removing solution in three blinks of an eye. As he administered it with a cotton bud, the matriarch continued. You got so lucky with Calendula, and she has reshaped you from an awkward, mawkish little wandering arrow into an accomplished, successful medical expert. Penny really did manage to object to this one. We met at university, where I was studying to be exactly that. And who kept you on the straight and narrow? She's right. Lamia continued, lifting her foot as Hugo twisted himself into a new shape in order to reach the stray droplets. Galendola was the making of you. Both of us owe her a debt. Which leads me to my news. That little apartment you two are holed up in is no place for a family. The bottom of Penny's stomach dropped away as she realized where this was going. And I understand you two are coming to the final discussions regarding the expansion of said family between you. To that end, even on your shared salaries, you won't be able to retain spacious premises within the city. No, thought Penny. Don't. And this old house was built precisely with that familial expansion in mind. So I am going to generously offer you two a very attractively priced lease on a sizable part of the property. You can commute to work on that tram you love so very much, and whatever stallion is lucky enough to find himself obliged to the pair of you will have a magnificent abode to raise the next generation in. And? And? Oh, this is so sudden and twice as magnanimous. But where will you live, Mother Lamia? There's quite room enough for me to remain here. And there it was. I shall abide with Hugo to tend to my needs and keep an eye on your gentleman for you. Ensure he doesn't go wandering. Penny couldn't breathe. Her eye twitched. Crumbs, not now. Not now, please. She's overcome, said Lamia, seemingly from a great distance. No, it's an episode. Snap out of it, you dare filly. Penny closed her eyes and breathed deeply, fighting for control. I thought she'd grown out of these too. She'd been having them frequently. Not for a while, said Cal, sipping her caffeine. Get her off that couch. I don't want her making a mess of it. This last prompt from her mother flung Penny dizzily to her feet. I'm just going to go out and get some air. She gasped, and the house went by in a blur until she was on the back steps. She staggered out onto the perfectly manicured mandarin lawn, removed her coat and flopped onto her back, resting her head on the soft earth, feeling the prickles at her neck as she stared up at the twilit sky. Her father hauled himself over on his crutches, and with some not inconsiderable effort, managed to get sat down beside her. Breathe, he said soothingly, his voice deep and low. Breathe. Just breathe. You have got all the time in the world. And all the will. Tears streamed down Penny's cheeks. She wiped her face fiercely and found Hugo had approached with a glass of water and some napkins. He knelt in the empty space her father had once been, and she again gratefully took the drink he offered. 
You won't want to miss your tram home, will you, young mistress? He asked quietly. She shook her head. If by chance you do, I shall call you a conveyance back to your abode and build the lady of the house for it. Penny sighed and lay back. I think I can find the strength to walk away from here. At least for the time being. The wise would say, Hugo vouched, that a toaster takes a lot of consideration before you make your choice. And this is a little bit bigger than a toaster. So let nobody force your mind. Then I shall take my time deciding. Penny said, and then, unable to stop herself, added, How best to make everyone happy. Many weeks later. Gabriella, day 16 of Bastet, early winterfall, 1883. Donna Madrigal called to mind Penny's father, Emmett. It wasn't only paperbone they had in common, it was a trait shared by many of those afflicted, those who spent their entire lives amid this particular Soma Oneros, a quiet, calm, considered air. By the nature of their brittle frame, they must be cautious, choosing their movements decisively and attempting them carefully. Penny. Donna intoned a single, ornately carved crutch with a clever, flexible footpiece, propping her up. What brings you down here? Um, it's a rhetorical question, dear one. She said with a sweep of her head as she pivoted to walk alongside Penny, using her free hand for emphasis. She was immaculately dressed in a pale beige linen, a single streak of purple in her hair, which matched her earrings. There's only two reasons you come down here, and since you're not asking me for anything, I'm betting it's the other one. You know, he told me what Cal asked of the both of you. Uh, oh? It had been far too long since she and Ganny had spoken. Yes, that would be what's been bothering the both of us for a while now. Penny had felt the hole growing between them back at the tabled proposition. But as the days dragged on, that hole had grown, and now it felt like a river at night time, treacherous and perilous to attempt a crossing. He had brushed off her jokey invites upstairs, and she had chastised herself for their tone retrospectively. Now she stood upon the checkered floor, reinforced with rubbery, vulcanized, and textured tiling. She watched the way Donna's customized boots gripped it and how her crutch found firm purchase as she moved, and along each wall ran deceptively tactile, elegant rose-gold handrails. Efficient, safe, clever. Hmm. I can understand why you'd be bothered by the prospect. It's a big step to make for all three of you, said Donna. My two husbands dote on me, and I have to fight them nightly to hold on to my independence. It's nice to be cared for so much. She smiled dryly. It's all I can do to stop them taking up shop here to wipe up my keffin spills and toss peachy petals in my wig. But I've got an assistant for that, and the husbands know where they need to be. I feel like Ganny would be like that. I mean, awfully supportive. Penny admitted as they moved along. But I'd want things to change as little as possible. I'd want him to keep his job. I wouldn't want to take him away from you. Hmm. 
Have you considered doing exactly that and retaining full-time childcare? You three together can afford it. Plenty of gentlemen out there unattached and just waiting to play that part without the romantic bells and whistles. No, that's just it. The romance wouldn't be there anyway. Not for the two of us, at least. So, is this about not wanting to share him with Cal in that way? Donna asked slyly. Ah, let me get that door for you. Penny dashed ahead and stood, holding the underlit copper gate open. Donna edged past her, giving the side-eye as she went. The darkened laboratory was filled with glowing crystals, hanging shapes of elegant armor, and the impressive array of weaponry lined up against the east wall. Quarrels of different sizes, lightning pikes, blasting sticks, tremor grenades, and shock gauntlets, each one artisanally constructed, designed to efficiently disable. Almost everyone in the room was female. Around a dozen Elaine specialists were ensconced in their experimental projects. Penny turned to where Ganny normally operated to find only his male colleague. This short, stocky, elegant fellow was making adjustments to a vambrace gizmo upon a workbench with a pockmarked wall behind it. He was clad in a dark utility suit with curved purple flashes along the left sleeve, complementing his wavy, purple-streaked hair and neatly trimmed matching beard. His expression was intense and critical as he stepped back, sliding this wrist armor on. If you come to claim your house husband, you'll have to get in line, Attar said, without looking at Penny. He's out nurturing his lunch to maturity, hoping to have some sausage grandkids by supper time. Perhaps I should wait for him? Hi, Donna. So good of you to bring me new projects. Good afternoon, Attar. Madrigal replied placidly. Can you activate that Nox rod? Use the screen. I don't want one of these bolts bouncing off and knocking you into the middle of next week. Penny obligingly moved herself behind a sturdy metal construction with a reinforced viewing window. Donna sidled up behind her. Okay, fire when ready. Penny reached out to a nearby clamped and humming metal stave with its imposing winged headpiece and glittering crystalline power source. Attar stood directly in front of it, holding up his vambrace. Nervously, she depressed the inset trigger with a click and squeezed off a round. The rods screeched with the sound of ripping silk and flung out a sizzling yellow bolt. Instantaneously, as Attar balled his fist, a red shield composed of sparkling light erupted forth from the device to form an upside-down teardrop-shaped curtain between them. The shield caught the bolt and sent tendrils of yellow lightning siphoning back down into itself until all that remained was a faint aura of ionization. Attar turned about a smirk on his face as he stroked his chin in triumph. He cocked his head at their unasked question. Oh, it's just wearable tech capable of absorbing damage that gets thrown your way? Rather an elegant design if I do say so myself. Anyway, Donna, about this new project, my plate's fairly full right now. The purple fellow went on quickfire, adjusting the shield's length until the tip touched the ground and sparked. But this one causes utter chaos wherever you throw her, so shouldn't take too long to weaponize. He sent a striking, violet glance in Penny's direction. I'm going to go back upstairs. The young woman stammered as a cruel smirk twitched at the corner of Attar's mouth. Could you let Ganny know I was after him? That he already knows. I mean, it would just be lovely to talk again. Penny hurried away, cheeks beetroot red. Donna examined her protege. 
It's like she was a vole, and you just left her head on my pillow. Okay. Granted, I was a bit harsh there. But her little goody two-shoes... Me, 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 me. This high-pitched sound was accompanied by many pulled faces and gesticulations. Ugh. The whole routine. Privileged out the wazoo. Hmm. Maybe she's being genuine. Maybe she could have braved coming down to see him ages ago. She gets no points for being gutless. Donna shrugged. Maybe she was afraid of having her head bitten off. Or her guts bitten out. A lot of maybes. But you know how much I absolutely loathe being interrupted when I have a rhythm going. I shall vouch for her strength of character myself. Now sheathe those claws, young squire. It's unbecoming of a gentleman, said Donna, giving Attar a meaningful look. Yes, madam. Attar nodded, getting back to his protective measures. been listening to episode four of Stone Spring Maidens, Back to Mothwood, written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Donna Madrigal, performed by Shanta Parasuraman. Atar Rubens, performed by Orion Richardson. Lamia Clemence, performed by Cindy Womack. Emmett Clemence, performed by Akshdeep Singh Vora. Calendula Renwick, performed by Sharon Shaw. Penthesily Renwick, performed by Theo Lee. Hugo, performed by James Batchelor. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Stonespring Maiden's theme, Far Destiny, composed and performed by I. Sazanov of Shockwave Sound. Many soundscapes including Mansion Night, Submerged, Orbital Platform, Starship Medical, and Steampunk Station by Tabletop Audio. Stonespring Maidens is available in a gorgeous paperback from Amazon.com along with the previous nine stories from the New Century Multiverse, and the two newest, Panthasol and Nightfall of the Wendigo. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Mm-hmm.